Well, that looks like a boring series. <laughs> Leaper. Okay, so what we're going to do is this. We're going to be going right into it for the next seven weeks um, because honestly, whew, it's 2020 and it is complicated. It is so, and if you're not a Christian, like if you're here and you're still like on the fence, you're here because your parents bring you, your friends invited you or whatever, and you're, maybe you, you like the idea, you don't yet know Jesus as your Savior, you like the idea of Jesus as your, as your Savior, but to be honest, if we were totally honest, the thing that has been off-putting to you about going all in has been, well, Christians and what they believe. And like, look, I, how, can I just accept Jesus and just ditch the Christians? Is that possible? Okay, I mean, because sign me up for that. That might be you because honestly, what Christians believe seems to be in 2020 so stinking complicated. Or you might be a Christian. You know Jesus. And yet at the same time, you're feeling like, man, I, I feel like I grew up believing some things and I don't know if I believe all of them. I don't even know if they're all in the Bible. And, 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 and I don't know how I'm supposed to operate as a follower of Jesus in my circles, at my school, at my workplace, and my family with regard to all the things in the world. And, and to be truthful, this is not something that's new. For the past 2,000 years, Christians have engaged the complicated. They've had to walk through it and, and decipher it and understand it. And, 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 and our, our tribe has done as many great things as they've done. We've also been awful with regard to how we've handled situations. We've failed and fumbled how to communicate about sensitive subjects. And because of that, we, we've, we've kind of gotten into an awkward situation because we've either misspoken by saying the wrong things, we've been misunderstood when we've said the right things but said them poorly, or we've just chosen not to speak at all because it's complicated. Here's two things that'll cut through the complication. Um, first off, um, this morning, um, Myself, if I, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Errol McFadden. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm going to be team teaching this with our campus pastor for Morris, for our Morris campus. It's going to be launching this fall, uh, Pastor Eric Swanson. And we're going to be team teaching, talking through the reality of what's, what cuts through the complications. What is it about Jesus that, that engages us in a way that we can talk about this stuff? And, and the first thing of the two that will help us have confidence in the midst of the complication of everything in our world today is first off, that again, this is not new. Christians have been running into the, Christians, as, again, as many atrocities as Christians have had at their hands, and there have been atrocities, oppression, bigotry, etc. There have been Christians who have been the lead voices in civil rights, and women's rights, and children's rights, have been the lead voices against abuse, have been the people who brought culture into a place of wholeness and health. Because, not, not to the detriment of, but because, not because they're ignoring Scripture or ignoring the example of Jesus, but because, because of the second thing. The second thing is this, is that you've got a great coach. Your coach is not myself and it's not Eric, it's Jesus himself. And, and what Jesus does is he comes into a situation by equipping us to understand how to engage all of this. You are here for a reason. You are in 2020, not by accident. You're not an old soul. You should have been born in the 40s or, or some other time. From, you are here in 2020 for a reason. God's planned it that way to deal with these issues. And, and the, way, the secret sauce to dealing with them is through that second thing, that coach, through Jesus, who exhibited the process that we're going to be modeling, everything we're going to be talking about in this series after, which is dealing with the complicated issues full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. 
You see, they are often pitted against each other like fighters in a ring, but that simply is not true. Can we all just acknowledge that it's difficult for our hearts to receive grace in the same way that it is difficult for our minds to comprehend truth? So when John, a follower and disciple of Jesus, wrote his gospel about the one he loved, he found it appropriate to begin by saying that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. Yes, Jesus, who was 100% God and 100% man, 100% lion and 100% lamb, is 100% grace and 100% truth, because when you're eternal, you can have percentages like that. See, most of us feel comfortable in one camp or the other, as if comfort was the main point. Grace and truth often feels like a violent game of tug of war, where the tension in the rope becomes the tension the world feels when looking at us Christians. Those who pull on truth think the grace side is wimpy. See, truth is absolute, it's definable and powerful. The truth side must win because what else could we be anchored in? Grace. The truth is you can't handle the truth without grace. But too often, those pulling on grace in the tug of war view the truth side as too rigid. Because grace is messy, it's reckless, and it's humbling. It winds its way into human hearts like a stream winds through a forest. It's unpredictable. People think grace is soft on sin, but grace is just getting started. True grace looks at sin and only works harder. The grace side must win, because what else could we put our faith in? Truth. But back to the point where we pick the side where we feel the most comfortable. See, we usually side with the one because we haven't fully experienced the other. We resonate with the one we most assimilate, and it's a silly little game we Christians play. We'll beat people down with self-righteous truth or drown their sorrows in a bottle of cheap grace, but neither one transforms. While we are busy arguing our side, the world is left cold in the dark and outside. All because we feel comfortable with grace or comfortable with truth. But what if comfort wasn't the point? Maybe grace and truth is less about comfort and more about the tension. While the world turns away from our silly little debates about which is more important, or while it waits to see which one will be more clearly seen in our living, Jesus stands in the middle of our tug of war. Jesus is found in the tension. You see, no one will ever know grace unless we know the truth. And we will never know the truth if we don't understand grace. And we won't know either unless we know Jesus. So we're talking about grace and truth this morning. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember Jerry Seinfeld. He's like one of my favorite comedians growing up. And he had this great bit about medicines and especially about painkillers. And he would talk about how he's at the store and he's got to look at and make a decision because this one is fast acting, but this one is long lasting. And so I have to decide when I want to feel better, now or later, okay? It's like 20 years old, still a good joke. But uh, this is how I think we come at things in our culture, whether you're Christian or not, especially as Christians, so often it feels like we're supposed to side with one side or the other on just all kinds of issues in life. And sometimes when you hear grace and truth, it sounds like grace versus truth. That you've got to stand up for truth or you have to side with grace. And what we're going to see this morning is Jesus wasn't grace versus truth. He was grace and truth. And it's so important to get our minds around that to fully experience who he is to us. But also so that we can uh, be the same as we represent him in the world. So I want to put this verse on the screen. Um, John chapter 1. And you know, we just celebrated Christmas a few weeks ago, and that's when the eternal Christ left heaven and came to earth, born as a baby, lived as a man. And John 
spent time with that man. He hung out with him. He worships him. And John is one of four gospel writers who writes uh, about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And if you know, at the beginning of the book of John, it has this whole idea about the word became flesh. And, and it's talking about how Jesus was with God and he's always been with God and now he came to earth as a man. And this is how John chooses to introduce Jesus as he introduces us for the very first time in the book of John. Chapter 1, verse 14 says this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, and then he says it, full of grace and truth. And this is a powerful thing about who Jesus is, that he comes to the earth and he shows us how to follow God, how to represent God, how to treat people, and how to live full of both grace and and truth. And it's like John is talking to you. It's like John is, he's writing us this letter and he's like, listen, I love this guy. I spent a lot of time, I, I, I hung out with him. I heard him teach. I watched how he treated all kinds of different people, how he navigated all kinds of different situations. And here's what I want to tell you about him just to get things started. Across his entire life and all of his ministry and all of his teaching and all of his interactions, he continued to be full of grace and he continued at the same time to be full of truth. And our minds don't quite understand it because we feel like it's kind of one has to give. I, you know, I think we usually picture it as a balancing act. That it, like a, a perfect balance would be 50-50, but it's actually 100-100. That we can be full of grace and full of truth without having to weigh down the other side. It's not a balancing act. This is how Jesus lived. This is how Jesus spoke. This is how Jesus ministered to people. Always full of grace and always full of truth. And this is why people were attracted to Jesus. The, you know, as Jesus came and he ministered, people, crowds followed him. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to be healed by him. They wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to be his friend. People were attracted to Jesus. And people were attracted to the truth because they said, who is this that teaches with such authority? And he upholds the law and he upholds truth. And they were, they were attracted to that, but they were even more attracted to his grace. Because who is this that can forgive sins? And he looks at us with all of truth and he offers forgiveness of sins and, and he tells us that God is love and he teaches us about the kingdom of God and people are attracted. But the same reasons that people were attracted to Jesus is the same reasons that people were offended by Jesus. See, not everybody was attracted to him. Some people were put off with this truth because they didn't like hearing that they were sinners. Sometimes people don't like hearing that they've got a sin issue and they need a savior. Or they were offended that he would offer such audacious grace to people who clearly didn't deserve it. They've gone too far, they've done too much, they said too much, and they were outside of his grace and he would love them anyways. And so some people were attracted to this truth plus grace and other people were offended by his truth and grace. But Jesus says, this is how I am. The New Testament says Jesus was a stumbling stone. He's wisdom to some, but he's foolishness to others. And the reason things are complicated in 2020, especially if you try to uphold truth and follow Jesus, is is because some people will be attracted to Jesus and some people will be offended by Jesus, both because of the truth and because of the grace. If you read through the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is full of grace and truth at all times, but it's sometimes confusing and unexpected. It's like he's shooting from the hip and here he's responding with grace and he's forgiving people and here he's throwing over tables and he's got righteous anger and he kind of seems schizophrenic, but it's not that he's confused or schizophrenic, it's just that he's full of both and we see both come out of his interactions and his teaching and his ministry. Truth says you're accountable. But grace says you're forgiven. And both are true. And Jesus says both are true, but they seem like they contradict. Truth says you're wrong. Truth says what sin is very clearly. But grace says I love you anyways. 
And Jesus didn't come to die on a cross, you know, just to be nice. He did it because we desperately needed it because truth says we are sinners. But grace says, I love you anyways. I will lay down my life in place of yours. Jesus is both. And here's the thing. I think you have a tendency to lean towards one or the other. I think we all have a tendency to lean towards either, you know, more naturally bent towards truth or more naturally bent towards grace. And I don't think either one is bad. They are both Jesus-like qualities. If you lean towards truth and you love truth, like that's really good, but we need to be full of both. If you're just like God is love and I'm trying to represent that, that's a Jesus-like thing, but we need to represent both. So I I was kind of thinking you could be like a truth-oriented Christian or a grace-oriented Christian. Both are good and both are weak. So here's how I was breaking it down. Truth-oriented Christians, okay, they love studying scripture, and discussing theology because they just love that truth. They want to talk about it. They want to internalize it. They want to believe it. They want to proclaim it. And that's really good. They love God's holiness. They love God's justice. The downside is often they can be quick to judge and slow to forgive. Because we just get indoctrinated in truth and we see things as black and white and that's right and that's wrong and I love God's you know, truth and his holiness but uh, it's so easy to judge people and sometimes slow to forgive because I'm strong on truth but I need, I need to work on grace. Grace-orientated Christians, they love God's forgiveness and God's freedom. They love that God is love and he's a good God and he's kind and he's gracious and he's compassionate and they celebrate these kinds of things but sometimes grace-orientated Christians struggle to embrace the fact that there is clear right and wrong. That we can't make everything a gray area and say, no, it's not a big deal. Oh, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want you to be offended by the truth because God loves you no matter what. I won't actually proclaim the truth to you. I'll just tell you that God loves you no matter what. And we're cheating people if that's the message we send. I wrote this down. They accept us for who we are, but they never help us become who we should be. And everybody loves that soft side of God, but we also have this truth side of God that we need to deal with. And honestly, without truth, you can't have grace. Until you understand sin, you can't begin to understand God's grace. They go together. Jesus is full of both, and he calls us to be full of both. If you're a grace person, you're most concerned about being loved. You want to offer love. You want to be loved back. If you're a truth person, you're most concerned about being right, even if it means you're unloved because you're like, truth hurts. You know what I mean? Like, and we can be both, and both are good, but we should strive to be full of both. And I don't know about you, but when it's about me, I want grace. When it's about somebody else, it's easy to want truth. When I see the news and the people that, you know, breaking the law or whatever, I throw the book at them, you know, lock them up. When I get a traffic ticket, I'm on my knees in the courtroom begging for mercy, right? When it's your sibling, you know, ground them for life. When it's you, please give me another chance. And it's so easy to want God's grace for us and cast God's truth on other people. But we need to be full of both. We should experience Jesus in our life as both. And then we should represent God as both to others. So I want to look at a story in the, uh, uh, still in the book of John, John chapter 8. If you brought a Bible or a device that opens up to the Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 8. And I want to look at this story. Maybe it's one you've heard before or even read before. Uh, but it's an incredible true story of Jesus dealing with people in a really hairy situation. And we see fullness of truth and fullness of grace all at the same time. Jesus is full of both. John chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. 
Don't overlook this. She's caught in the act. She's caught red-handed. In fact, their law, that was a sin. That was wrong. They were right to want to punish her or whatever. But it was nothing that could just be talked about or overheard or, you know, um, accused of. It had to be witnessed. It had to be caught. So she's literally caught red-handed. And they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now my first question is, Where's the dude? Okay? It takes two to tango, right? And according to their law, they both deserve death. And they only bring in the woman. And I don't know why. I don't know if, like, somebody had an agenda in, against her or if the guy was crazy rich and he was able to get out of it. We don't know why. But it's a little weird to begin with that there's only one party represented, okay? And uh, verse 5, they said this. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I don't know if they care about the woman or the man or what. They're just trying to, like, get Jesus in trouble. They're trying to get him to offend more people and to stumble over his words. And they put him in this lose-lose situation because they're kind of right, but Jesus can't win no matter what he says. Because they did have their own Jewish law that was separate and kind of on top of the Roman law that ruled where they lived. And so, according to their Old Testament scriptures and their Jewish customs, uh, they're right. Adultery was punishable by death. And so they're like, okay, is Jesus going to uphold the law? If not, we're going to hate him, and he's, he can't be our rabbi, and he, he's not, you know, he's not actually a good Jesus, a God follower himself. But at the same time, they weren't allowed to carry out the death sentence with, without permission from the Roman government. They were kind of trumped and superseded by that. Imagine if you know the scriptures of, of the story of Jesus and his trial, how it bounces back and forth between the high priest and Caesar, and it has to be, you know, approved by the Romans for the Jewish to carry out, the Jews to carry out their own customs. And so he's kind of in a lose-lose. He doesn't have the authority to say, yeah, go ahead and kill her. But if he doesn't say that, he's not upholding the law. And so they're using this to trap him. And here's what happens. Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And this is amazing. This is brilliant. This is where we see Jesus uphold 100% truth, but carry an offer with 100% grace. And he says, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see it in there? Grace and truth in the same breath. To this woman who was guilty and was sinful, he doesn't say, It's no big deal, you know. Like, nowadays, we're like, it's 2020, get with the times. How can you call that sin, you know? And, and I'm sure back in there, they'd, they'd be like, it's AD4, get with the times, you know? I don't, somebody had to say that, right? Like, we're always thinking we're so much more progressive than whoever came before us. And so maybe, you know, Jesus doesn't dismiss her sin. He doesn't say, oh, try to do better, you know. Uh, he doesn't say that's not really sin these days. He doesn't dismiss it. He says, go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. He calls it sin. He says she's wrong, but he still forgives her. And he says, and then neither do I condemn you. And here's the thing. You and I all stand condemned because of our sin. And then Romans 8 says, but now, through Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation 
Jesus doesn't belittle our sin or dismiss it, but he can forgive it. And so he upholds truth. What I really love is first, he kind of condemns the whole crowd because they come with stones in hand ready to take it out. And he says, okay, first I'm going to make you face up to the fact that you have sin in your life. And no one has the guts to throw the first stone because they're condemned by their sin. It's kind of like when my kids come to me whining and tattling about each other, hoping that they can get their sibling in trouble. And then I kind of like find out what happened. And I'm like, well, you're both wrong, right? Like, and, and you want her to get in trouble and she wants you to get in trouble. And I'm like, do you all want to get punished here or what? Because you're all wrong. And this is kind of what Jesus says to the crowd because he's full of truth. And he makes them see the truth of sin even in their own lives. But he offers grace and forgiveness right along side of it. This is amazing. We need someone as gracious as Jesus to tell us the whole truth because we need both. Uh, I read this little book. It's called The Grace and Truth Paradox. It's by a guy named Randy Alcorn. It's really short, so you can feel smart when you get done with a quick book. But uh, he says a lot of really, uh, really smart, really well said things. Here's one I want to put on the screen. This is a a quote from his book, and he says this. It's just an amazing word picture that helps us kind of get our minds around this idea. Birds need two wings to fly. With only one wing, they're grounded. The gospel flies on the wings of grace and truth. Not one, but both. And you can picture this bird with one wing going nowhere. And the gospel has to be balanced and full of grace and truth. The gospel flies on the wings of both grace and truth. This is the truth to us. That the truth is, we need a savior. And the good news is, God offers us grace through Jesus Christ. And then he tells us to live like that to everybody else. I wrote this down. Grace never ignores or violates truth. Christ went to the cross because truth said your sin must be paid for. See, the reason he came to earth and died on a cross for your sin is not just because he was trying to show everybody how nice he is. It's because he knew that you were helpless and hopeless, destined for eternity in hell because of your sin. And he couldn't just say, oh, I'll talk to my dad about that. I'll get you off the hook. Well, maybe we'll forget it ever happened. He says, the truth is, sin leads to death, and this, this deserves punishment. This deserves penalty, and it must be paid for. But the grace says, Jesus said, I will lay down my life in your place. I will trade you my perfection for your penalty. And he went to the cross, and he suffered a brutal death so that he could forgive you for your sins. Because he had to uphold truth and offer grace 100% at the exact same time. This is why he went to the cross, because truth mattered, and he offered grace in spite of it. And this is not cheap grace, okay? This is not like, oh, well, if God loves me, then I can just ask for forgiveness. It's not a big deal. Um, I, I thought of it like this. Any concept of grace that makes you feel more comfortable about sinning is not biblical grace. Sometimes as Christians we say, oh, well, God is love and God always forgives and he loves me no matter what. So uh, it doesn't really matter how I live. In fact, the more I sin, the more he'll forgive and he gets more credit anyways, right? I remember uh, I had a friend in junior high that started coming to our church. And after a few weeks, he came up to me. He's like, I got it all figured out. This is awesome. Uh, I'll come on Sundays. I'll ask God to forgive me for my sins. Then I can live however I want all week long. I'll come back next Sunday, say I'm sorry, and it'll all be good, and I'll still get to go to heaven. And I remember as a junior high kid, I'd gone to church like my whole life, and I was like, that's brilliant, you know? (laughs) Here I am trying not to cuss and stuff, and you're not even worried about it because you know the things I've been taught. God is love. 
He offers forgiveness. He's a God of grace and compassion. I just got to come back next Sunday, say, please forgive me, and we're good to go. I'll still go to heaven. I don't have to change my life at all. I was like, this guy is on to something, right? But at the same time, I remember thinking, that can't be right. Like, God's not a doofus, and he knows your heart. He doesn't just hear your magic words and sprinkle magic potion on you. He looks at your heart. He sees a contrite heart actually saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I want to live better. And he forgives that every time. This is not a cheap grace. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could whisper magic words and feel better about yourself. He died on the cross so he could offer you eternal life, forgiveness of your sins, and a better way to live in the meantime. And I was like, hmm. It's not just magic words. It's not just cheap grace. Anything that makes me feel better about my sin is not actual grace. That's not right because it has to be full of truth and full of grace. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus calls sin, sin. Straight up. Plain and clear. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't dodge it. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's very truthful. He's very clear. He calls sin, sin. And then he paid for it for you. And yeah, you got a sin issue and you are helpless on your own. You've got an uncurable disease called sin, but I'll pay the price. I've got the cure. I'll lay down my life. He calls sin, sin, and then he pays for it. And when you consider the grace that God has offered you, it helps you offer to other people. When you realize that, wow, I did not deserve God's grace. Truth says, I'm on my way to hell. Grace says, through Jesus I can find eternity in heaven. When I understand what God has done for me, what Jesus has accomplished for me, despite the fact that I did not deserve it, then I can be a little more gracious, gracious with other people. I want to look at one more story um, that Jesus told in Matthew 18. So if you've got your Bible still open, swipe or turn back to uh, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. And I want to look at a parable that he tells. Parables are stories. Jesus often taught people in stories. He would tell a story to make a point. He would, like, paint these word pictures. And, and so um, there's one in Matthew chapter 18. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. And it starts with um, his disciples asking him a question, trying to learn, and uh, he, he kind of answers a question, but he tells a story to make it more memorable, okay? So Matthew chapter 18, um, in verse 21, Peter came to Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, when Peter asks this question, he actually feels really good about himself. He's way better than most people. You know, most people wouldn't forgive at all, let alone a second time, let alone a seventh time. And I think he's trying to actually score some brownie points with Jesus. Like, Jesus, I'm willing to forgive seven times, but eight, that's a little ridiculous. You know, and, and Peter's probably also like, and isn't that one of your favorite numbers anyways, Jesus? You know, seven, you know, and what a brown noser. Well, look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or other passages that kind of tell the story say that he said 70 times seven. And it's not about at number 78, then you can hold a grudge. What he's saying is it's an unnumbered, stop counting, continual grace, 100% all the time, keep forgiving because this is how God has forgiven you. Okay, and then he tells a story to make his point. In verse 23, Jesus says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought in. Again, if you've got an older translation, it might have some you know, form of money that we don't understand. But Jesus, his audience probably gasped because they would understand this is like you owing me a billion dollars. You can't make it up in this lifetime. It's an unpayable debt, okay? And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold 
to repay the debt. Verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything, which he couldn't do. He knew he couldn't do it, and the king knew he couldn't do it, but he's like asking the loan shark for another month, right? In verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He doesn't give him another month. He doesn't give him another 10 years. He cancels the debt. He's like, you know what? I'm feeling like I'm in a good mood. How about you owe me no gold? I will cancel the debt completely. This is amazing. This is ridiculous grace. Again, the crowd Jesus is talking to would gasp because this would never happen. What idiot king would cancel a debt that big? Verse 28, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, which is something that he probably could have made up in a little bit of time and paid back the debt. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. And he demanded, pay me back what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. It's funny, in the story, the guy says the same thing that he said to the king. And the funny thing is, this guy probably could have paid it back if you gave him another couple of months. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and they told their master everything that happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And actually, he would have had a lot less mercy because his debt was huge and he held a small grudge against somebody else. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And that ends the story. But then Jesus turns to the crowd and he gives them this zinger. And Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. I mean, how, is, how much has Jesus forgiven you? How many times has Jesus forgiven you? How many times did you not deserve it and he loved you anyways? And he says, now I expect you to be that gracious with other people. Because God forgave you a debt you could never pay. Your sin was an unconquerable hill of debt that you would never pay back with 12 lifetimes. And he canceled it. And he says, you walk in that grace and extend that grace to other people. We are called to offer grace. And what helps me is when I just consider how gracious God has been to me. How despite and while upholding the truth, he offers me forgiveness and love and grace that I don't deserve. And when I start to get my mind around that a little bit more, it helps me be able to live it out to other people. Because without it, I want truth for you and grace for me. And Jesus says, I'm 100% truth, 100% grace, full of both at all times. This is how I treat you. This is how I want you to treat others. This is how we will win people to, to Jesus. If you think about the early church, we just did this series a little while back on, in the book of Acts. In the early church, thousands of people are becoming Christians and added to their number. And you know what they did? It wasn't because they had free pizza. It was because they just tried their hardest to do what they saw Jesus do. Let's just uphold the truth and extend grace to the very best we can. And people will be attracted to Jesus. And yes, some people will still be offended by Jesus. And in today's culture, in 2020, as you, the better you do with grace and truth, some people will come to know Jesus and their life will be changed. But other people will be pushed away. And we need to do our best to do everything we can and let God do the rest in their heart. But people have always been attracted and offended by Jesus, which makes following him complicated. So what does this mean to us? I think two things. 
first of all, we purposely wanted to talk about this to start this series. As we go through the rest of the series and the different topics, we want to look um, like this is the lens that we look through at other topics on how we follow Christ in our culture. The lens is full of grace and full of truth. So what are the things that we actually are going to talk about? Like what are the actual, over the course of the next six weeks, what are we actually going to be getting uh, in on? And, and honestly, we wanted to find things that are issues that Christians have fumbled or failed publicly or even internally as the church and really tackle those. Um, we wanted to, what are the things that people are like <laughs> running away from? Like, okay, let's <laughs> run towards those things and actually look at them face to face. And here they are. Uh, the first off, um, one of the things we wanted to hit on was how am I supposed to view my money? And that might not seem like a super controversial thing, except for the fact that the world has a general perspective about churches. That's earned. And the earned perspective about churches is that that's what they're all about. I grew up in the 80s where I watched every Christian that made his way onto the television screen had two thing, three things. One, he had a ginormous Bible that looked like he was just going to become an American gladiator just by lifting it up. Two, he had a suit. That was just a stellar suit. And that's, not, to be honest, I, I am averse to wearing suits, not because I'm casual, but it's because I grew up in the 80s as a Christian kid who saw televangelists talk about Jesus' love, talk about Jesus' greatness, and they wore the suit, and they had the, the, the again, the 80-pound Bible, and they were frauds. And they cheated people out of their money. And I would love to say that that stopped in the 80s, but it hasn't. It extended all the way up to our present time. A perspective that has been earned by Christian gatherings and churches is that that's what they're all about. And so it's very easy for, for what a lot of people have done within the church, from my generation and others, that have said, you know what, we've seen this abuse so many times, we're going to run the opposite direction, and we're going to draw back talking about money, which is messed up. You know why? Because just because we stopped talking about money, has that stopped you from talking about money on a day-to-day basis? Have you talked about or thought about money issues this past week at all? Why in the world are we not talking about it? Then if that's a real-life issue, why is the church that's talking about being real with God, real with each other, and real in the world muted on that subject when God has a perspective on it? Is that complicated? You betcha it is. But is that something that we should run towards and discuss and find out what God's perspective is? Absolutely. So we're going to talk about that. How am I supposed to view my money? A world needs to know about that. And and then we're going to just, because we're looking for an easy week and we want to talk about something super, super easy, we're going to talk about political hand grenades, abortion, immigration, and environmental concerns. Here's why. Every single political debate, whether it's Democratic or Republican this year in 2020, is going to address these three issues. Every single one. You're going to be bombarded with commercials from now till November. You know it's going to happen. One of the greatest things about the end of November in an election year is not just that the election is over, but that the commercials can stop. You're going to be bombarded with these three subject matters. And wouldn't it be amazing if we didn't just assume what the Bible said or assumed what Christians generally believe, but we actually investigated it full of grace and truth. And we actually discussed it in such a way that this wasn't talking about those people, within our congregation, we've had people who've had abortions. We're not just talking about those people. Within our congregation, we have people who have had to wrestle with the immigration situation personally, their own family. Within our church, we have people that land all across the spectrum as far as the environment. Wouldn't it be great if we had a place that was safe, that we could actually discuss that and recognize we're going to disagree on some of these things, but what if we found out what God has to say and figure out what our application is coming out of that full of grace and truth? 
we're going we're gonna to talk about, we're going to jump on into um, how tolerant I should be. I jumped on two there. Um, one of the things that Christians oftentimes wonder, who are, are, understand that there's truth, and understand God's calling us into grace, but how, how tolerant should I be of other people? Tolerance is the single agreed-on consensus value that our, our society still has. We've lost a lot of values, a lot of principles have gone by the wayside, but for whatever reason, tolerance, or, or seemingly aiming at tolerance, is the last strand of values that everybody seems to agree upon, which is, which is fine. The problem with the tolerance is not tolerance, it's tolerance in is- isolation of itself. And so we're going to describe that. We're also going to talk about science versus faith. Are these things seeming like, in order to be a deeply scientific person, do you have to abandon your faith? Or in order to be a person of faith, do you have to just basically like close your eyes and ears whenever scientific reports are discussed? And he's like, la, 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 I don't believe any of it. Is that reality? No. And so we're going to be talking about science versus faith. We're going to talk about sexual and gender identity. These are things that, that need to be discussed because honestly, Again, this isn't someone else's issue. This is NBC's issue. This has to do with heterosexuality, homosexuality, transgender. It, all, of these, all these things are us issues. This is not the, the out there issues. We need to grapple with these. We need to wrestle with these. And the pro- one of the things that I, I can't stand about um, what the reputation that Christians have earned is that we oftentimes discuss sensitive issues about these issues that the culture has, or these issues that the world has, and have ignored the fact that we are human beings in this room who struggle with different things and are wrestling with different things in real time. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a safe place, that if you were someone, that you were across the spectrum on that issue, could actually sit and listen to a pastor who's talking about this from an angle that's full of truth, full of grace. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could actually invite friends to that and not have an ulcer worried about what's going to be said? I hope that you do. We're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be uh, just basically having a catch-all at the end of issues that you've had with God's Word. We're like, I, look, again, I, I'm a little bit distant from, from, from following God because of what I've seen in the Bible or what I've heard taught about the Bible. Or I've got this question. How do we believe the Bible if this is in there? We want to go ahead and just get as many of those as we can and try to address those at the very, very end. Um, uh, the political commentator uh, Ben Shapiro has said before, facts don't have feelings. Facts don't have feelings. Which is true if you're doing algebra. Algebra and math, if that's all just straight up facts, facts don't have feelings. As soon as you insert humans into the equation, however, facts do have feelings because they're people that you're, you're relating to. And, and the, one of the, the, the problems with a lot of Christians is that we've been high on facts and, and low on the fact that Jesus was not all 100% truth to the detriment of grace. He was all truth and all grace. So apparently the transfer of communication does matter when dealing not with math, but with humans. There is this guy named Tim Keller. He still is a guy named Tim, Tim Keller. I love this guy. I love his writings. And in a book, ironically, about marriage, he gave some of the best advice on how to deal with a culture that you disagree with. He said this, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see truth about ourselves and repent. 
The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a world that is starving. They're starving for truth, absolutely, but they're also starving for grace. And the person that we see that met in perfectly is Jesus. This series, our goal is to own that reality and to exhibit that reality even in areas that we conflict about or disagree about. But we have to own it first. So here's uh, how we want to wrap up today. I want to uh, kind of lead us in some prayer time. But first, I want to uh, ask you to identify for yourself, which do you naturally lean towards, grace or truth? And like I said, both are good. Both are of God, and, and, and that's good. But uh, identify which you lean towards, okay? Uh, if you're not sure, you know, just ask your spouse or whoever you're close with because they're going to know, okay? Uh, my wife helped me realize I am a truth guy, okay? And like, there's good in that, but I need to grow in grace for sure. Uh, I could give you lots of examples, but one is the way I honk the horn at fellow drivers, okay? <laughs> when I go shopping for a car, one of the first things I do is honk the horn because it's got to be good enough for me. I've worn out and broken horns on two different vehicles that I've owned over the years. And I see it as my job to society to teach fellow drivers the rules of the road, okay? I'm a truth guy. I'm a teacher. I need to teach you lessons because, and, and, and my wife hates it, and she's right, and, but I always tell her she's not right. And she'll, you know, how can you honk at that person? And where's your grace? And I said, listen, if, if I wasn't such an amazing driver, we might be dead right now. And <laughs> If I don't teach this person a lesson, someone else might die tomorrow. So, like, I am, like, I am helping out the world here one car ride at a time. And so I'm a truth guy. And then she'll say something like, they probably go to our church. <laughs> so if that was you this morning, let me apologize. That's why I don't have the mission sticker on my car yet. Because <laughs> we're trying to grow a brand new campus here. And I might, not, I might do the opposite. If, and it, it, I need to grow in grace in a lot of areas, but especially with fellow drivers, okay? Uh, and so, which are you? Identify which you naturally lean toward, and then help, that'll realize uh, which you need to grow in. And, and you can ask God about this. And this is what, how we're going to close the day, to, to say, do I need to grow in grace or do I need to grow in truth? Sometimes you just need to put yourself in other people's shoes and see their perspective so that you can extend them grace. Somebody really smart told me this. Often we offer grace in areas that we needed grace. Because I can understand that. I can relate with that. But we withhold grace in areas that we don't understand. Because how dare you do that sin? I never did that sin. I can't understand that. I can't offer you grace. And so we need to grow in both. And so um, here's my challenge. Maybe there's someone that you know that you need to offer grace to. It could be someone you're, you're with all the time. It could be someone maybe you haven't talked to in a while. But would you just open your heart up to God speaking that to you and say, God, is there someone that I need to offer some grace to? And I've been truthful, but I haven't been graceful. Or maybe the opposite is true for you. And that you would ask God to speak to you that, is there someone that I just need to bring some truth to? Not in a harsh, you know, beat you over the head with the kind of a way, but maybe I've been kind to them and in and, and my efforts to be kind with them, I haven't actually told them the truth. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. How can we set people free without the truth? And so I, I want to just take a moment right where you're at, and I want to give you time to just talk to God between you and him in your chair. And if, if you're like, hey, I want to get better at this, I want to grow in this, that you could just say, God, help me. Help me to experience you in the fullness of grace and truth. Help me to, to grow and represent you in 
fullness of grace and truth. And just tell God that that's your heart. Ask God for his help. And if he wants to speak something into you in an area of your heart or a relationship in your life, that you would open yourself to that. So I just want to give you just a moment here this morning to just kind of do some business with God. Let's go ahead and do that. pray together and I want to lead us in a prayer for us that we would pray for each other that we would pray for us as a church we are the body of Christ we represent him in our world in our communities and so uh, I want you to be prayerful about us and so uh, let me let me lead us in this and we'll be done Heavenly Father thank you for this uh, this picture that you give us in Jesus this person that you give us this relationship that we're invited to thank you that you are full of grace and truth we need both thank you for both in my life God, help us to grow in that as individuals. Help us to grow in that as a congregation. That we would represent you as best we can in grace and truth. That we would stand for and we would proclaim your truth unapologetically, unashamedly, because it is true. But that we would do so with all the grace that Jesus offers us. And that as we do that, more and more people would come to know you for eternity, God. We ask you to grow us in that way so that you can use us in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, thanks for being here today. We'll see you guys back.